Hey everyone, Wade and I here, and we have an announcement as we gear up for a hundredth episode of Retire with Style, if you can believe that. That's right, Alex. It's hard to believe, but we're going to do a live Q&A session on YouTube as a recording for episode 100. So catch us on YouTube with all your questions on October 11th. That's a Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And it's going to be all hands on deck. Bob French will join us as well to make sure we have coverage for any question that you ask related to retirement and investing. All right, everyone. Hey everyone, just wanted you to know that we've looked far and wide, high and low. Is that how it goes away? <laughs> and, Up and, and down. We've, I don't know. And we finally found our listener. Wait. Yeah, that's right, Alex. We'd like to send a special birthday wish uh, to Alan Brady. Thanks for listening to the show. And Alan, happy birthday, but please tell one person. This way I can tell Wade we doubled our listenership. All righty. Thanks for listening, man. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Retire with Style. I'm Alex, and I'm here with my trusted companion, Wade Fow. And off we go. Right, Wade? Hey, everyone. That's right. Oh, you're skipping the small talk entirely. Oh, no, no. Week. Off we go to start with the small talk. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so what's the number, man? Yeah, well... Oh, I... <laughs> what's the number? <laughs> On the push-ups? Yeah. I've not gotten up to 100 a day yet, but I'm still gradually, I'm like 40 a day in that range. 40. All, <laughs> I'm working one on shot it. or are you doing them 10 at a time? No, not in one shot. I can't do more than 20 in one shot. All still, right. All right. We'll get working there. On hey, it. We're just happy you're at the gym, man. We're just happy you're <laughs> at the gym. Right? Everyone's a winner. Yeah. Everyone is a winner. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm doing that's I'm, right. And, and this weekend, I'll be in Bethesda for the Bogleheads Conference. And I, I think they still have. I thought usually they sell out, but I just checked. The registration's open if anyone is interested. That's always a big event. With Where in Bethesda? Of, at the Marriott. Uh, the, I understand it's a big facility, like the Marriott Conference Center or something. Like along Bethesda those lines Circle around Bethesda, there? Maryland. I think I know where that is. It's kind of a uh, go to. It's not I'm at the not, Hotel yeah, 8. I don't know the, They're moving out, these guys. The Super 8? <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever the hell it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you would have thought they would be at the Hilton, no. right? Like, so they seem smarter. Isn't that the commercial? Is it Hilton, or is it Hyatt? I don't even know. Like, I did stay at a Hyatt it's last night. A or, hotel that seems smarter. No, the commercial where they asked things and they were like, "I, I did stay at the Hyatt last night." Never mind. You no, don't get I the don't reference. All right, all right, all right, all right. All right. I don't see so many commercials these days. Yes, you're reading. You're reading. More of a streaming guy. <laughs> oh, streaming. What do you have on your streaming? <laughs> Oh, nothing in particular. <laughs> really? All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Fire away, man. Let's kick it off. What, what, all right. Yeah, okay. So the, the theme this week is time segmentation. We're going to do an arc on that. I gave Alex some materials to read, but I understand <laughs> you did not get to that. So you don't even know. <laughs> I've got to ask myself the question. I know this cold, Wade. Come on, man. I know this cold. I know this cold. <laughs> Time segmentation, otherwise known as bucketing. <laughs> right. Otherwise known as bucketing. Yeah. And probably more commonly known as bucketing. 
I don't know who gave it the time segmentation name, but in the popular media, you'll see the term bucketing more frequently. Maybe. And it is one of the four retirement income styles. Time segmentation sounds smarter. It sounds more like sophisticated when you say that, I guess, as opposed it to does. bucketing or something like that. Someone said, hang on, we have to reframe this to justify the advice we give. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. All right. You segment your investments based on the time horizon. But but yeah, that's the, the goal. And so I don't know how to really introduce this other than there's no clear definition of what bucketing or time segmentation means. If you ask 100 different advisors what it means, you'll get 100 different answers. Uh, those answers can vary along a number of, of different factors, just like, well, how many buckets are we talking about? What types of asset classes are we including in each of the buckets? And then a real simple one that I know is near and dear to your heart. When we talk about the bond side, are we using bond funds for these buckets? Or are we using individual bonds being held to maturity for these buckets? And then a big factor, and that's where a lot of these bucketing strategies kind of fall apart, is you need some clear mechanism for how you're going to replenish, how you're going to, as you spend money in the short-term bucket, how are you going to replenish that from the long-term buckets? And, and Jonathan Guyton, who's a, a critic of bucketing, wrote a column once where he said, there's no there there. That you, just, you talk about having all these buckets. It's really just a way to frame an asset allocation. But there's really nothing going on behind the scenes. And it's just a, it's some sort of framing type effort to, <laughs> to think about asset allocation that doesn't really do anything. Oh, we're just getting the that, dirty laundry that made... out of the way, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, please listen, a... <laughs> it'll change your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, if, you're, if your retirement income style is time There we go, there we go. Yeah, there <laughs> There is, there can be something to it, certainly, and it's kind of funny because when we get into this, the uh, the approach I'll use to describe bucketing or time segmentation, it's the asset dedication approach that Stephen Huxley and, and Jay Brent Burns developed, and from, frankly, they don't even think of themselves as time segmentation. I think because they, oh, and there's that famous thing that's been in the news. Everyone in the country is getting that. Oh, really? What was this? this <laughs> alert. What happened? Oh, is my mom driving like, again? Two, <laughs> no, at 2.20 Eastern time, every phone in the country is going to get an alert. So now, Really? I had no idea. I don't know when we're, we're filming. It's 2.18. Yeah, it's been in the news. I don't, it's some sort of test of the emergency broadcasting service. Well, don't panic. I thought my mom started driving. So there's a silver alert or something like that. Huh? Oh, wait, I can't hear you. Hey, everyone. One of the rare cases where we're not 100% live, we are cutting back in here after we got completely thrown off by the emergency alert that everyone in the country received. Uh, yeah, but we did something to our audio or something. We just, <laughs> yeah, we had a little bit of a technical gaffe at the same time, and so we decided to pause and resume. Uh, but we were talking about, so asset dedication they don't think of themselves as time segmentation, I think because they just don't want to be lumped in with all this kind of, it can get to be nonsense at some point with just, oh, there's all these buckets and you know, what are we doing with it? But I think of them really as a platonic ideal of time segmentation. So when I think of time segmentation, I think of asset dedication and I'll really kind of use that framework in the episode today to explain what time segmentation is so that 
platonic ideal i know appeals to you alex in terms of this is the true essence of, of what time that's like bob is. bob and loves that word they do. he's always saying platonic <laughs> 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 but uh so what what they call their own uh work is dedicated portfolio theory and it's really it's the same idea of what time segmentation is about it's using assets based on what they were intended for more so than, and this is the critique they would have of a total returns investing approach that, I mean, let's just start with that. Like they, they critique risk tolerance questionnaires. I know you're not a big fan of risk tolerance questionnaires either, but the reason they critique a risk tolerance questionnaire is because it really, it treats bonds as a less volatile version of stocks. You've got stocks and they're volatile. You've got bonds and they're volatile you add bonds to the portfolio to try to reduce the overall volatility, but short-term market volatility, the, the whole idea of modern portfolio theory is not really all that important to a household. For them, risk is just simply that you're not able to meet your financial goals. And so what does it mean to have a, a less volatile portfolio? If you're overfunded, your portfolio can be volatile and not necessarily be risky. If you're underfunded, you may have all your money in cash, but that's going to ensure you run out of money. And so you have a very risky portfolio. So they, they really try to move away from using volatility to measure risk and, and looking much more at using assets for their intended purpose. Bonds are fixed income assets. They, they provide a fixed income. You hold them to maturity to provide coupon payments and their face value at the maturity date. You know that in advance. Stocks are the, the growth asset. They're meant to provide growth. And so in a time segmentation model, you have bonds earmarked to cover short-term expenses so that you can focus on providing a runway for stocks to grow so that you're not forced to necessarily sell from your stock portfolio in case there's a market downturn and so forth. You give your portfolio more time to recover before you have to dip into it. And so you're really using assets differently based on their intended purpose. Stocks to fund short-term expenses, I'm sorry, bonds to fund short-term expenses, stocks to grow and provide a resource to help fund expenses over the it could also time. be cash that you have on the side it doesn't necessarily have to be bonds or something like that it could even be mangas but what two questions volatile or volatile that's the f- volatile, volatile. okay excellent <laughs> back to our pronunciation but you say volatility not volatility <laughs> Right. Volatility, <laughs> volatile. Okay. There we go. All right. <laughs> the other piece is how does this pertain to the RISA? Because I, I, I get it, right? But just for folks that are listening here, it's it's part of your style. And I agree. You could, you can, there are a couple of things there, but in the RISA matrix, in the framework, wh- where does time segmentation fit in? And what are those factors that they're, they're uh, pulling for? Yeah, yeah, so time segmentation is the upper left-hand quadrant. It's the safety first. You want contractual protections and optionality oriented. And I I think you can get that sense with what I was saying before about how asset dedication describes the the idea of bonds. You, You don't use bonds as a less volatile version of stocks like in a total return portfolio. You hold bonds to maturity. You get the contractual protections through the individual bonds to support those upcoming expenses. And then you get the optionality through the growth portfolio that's earmarked more for longer term expenses, but gives you the flexibility to make adjustments and changes and decide you want to change how much you want to spend and so forth. 
you have a lot more flexibility for that growth portfolio, but you're getting the contractual protections through the the short term. Okay, and in true je- rather than treating it as a big asset allocation. Gotcha. Case. And then in true Jeopardy fashion, you gave the answer before. So why why are these considered a, a behavior strategy? Why is this considered a behavior strategy? You were kind of alluding to it, but I want to make it just uh-huh. explicit. Well, yeah, I mean, in, in some sense, we usually think of the total return approach as the more rational strategy that you invest for total returns, you can spend capital gains, you can spend principal, you can spend cash flows. And so if you have a 60-40 portfolio, it's because your risk tolerance told you that's the uh, appropriate risk-adjusted return or the appropriate amount of risk to take for your ability to stomach short-term volatility. Uh, the, I, the reason, and, and maybe in some sense, that's the behavioral approach. I don't know. I guess if you're a time segmentation advocate, you might say it's the more rational approach. But I would say time segmentation is the more behavioral approach because it's more of a mental accounting framework. It's, no, we're not thinking about a total returns investing portfolio anymore. And we don't even know, like if we're going to be 60-40 stocks and bonds, that's not to do with any sort of risk tolerance questionnaire. It's behavioral in the sense of let's use our bonds to build short-term funding. And if I'm a more conservative investor, I just want a longer bond ladder, which means I'm going to have a higher bond allocation, but I'm not trying to target any particular asset allocation. And then also behaviorally, the idea is people tend to panic when there's a stock market. Have the next, however many people tend to <laughs> a panic when there's a stock market downturn. But I, if I know that I have however many years covered with bonds, then I don't have to panic and worry about my stocks. I have this window to let my stocks try to recover from any sort of market downturn before I'm forced to sell stocks. And then psychologically or behaviorally, that can help me stay the course, to not panic, to not sell my stocks after a market downturn, to, to move forward and, and to manage market volatility more successfully. So that, that's the kind of behavioral idea. You, you're not forced to sell your stocks, and that should make it easier for you to hold on to your stocks. And not but you're panic. saying at the end of the day, it's a framing exercise because if you view all of your assets within just a, a, a single asset allocation view effectively if you have short term if you're if you're dedicating bond funds bonds cash my whatever it is you're you're dedicating a certain amount of your assets to fund the short term expenses that you have right in like let's just say very secure instruments as you as you use them up what's happening in aggregate for your household is you're kind of you're not you're kind of you're becoming more aggressive because okay the first year bucket is depleted, right? The moment it gets depleted, you technically have less in stock to bonds, assuming that bonds was your financial instrument of choice. And so you're increasing your asset allocation. So that's why at the end of the day, it it is this sort of asset allocation view. It really is an aggregate. Now you don't frame it like that. So you're able to stomach that volatility a little bit more so much as, you know, the markets can can uh, refill the buckets as they're depleted or after a certain amount of time. And that's that's the rub there. Now, wait, I will say this. It, total return, people get caught up in like the, the 4% distribution or the, the, the 4.2% distribution or the 3.8% distribution. And they find this, they, they, they think that there's this search 
for what's the perfect distribution, you know, at any given point in time, there's always this perfect distribution based on some previous thing that, 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 that it's worked out for them on an Excel sheet. I think in that, in a general sense, directionally, you see the same thing with bucketing. And I think it's a favorite of engineers. I mean, total return is, but bucketing is, is, is a favorite of engineers too, because they create these layers of safety upon safety. You know, it's try to, it's trying to have these fail safes constantly in many iterations. And I think it tends to get over-engineered because at the end of the day, all you're doing is playing around with the asset allocation. You know, you're not really changing and, and you can't immunize yourself from this, but you know, they create all these different layers. It's almost like they're playing a game of, of uh, tower defense video games, you know, those tower defense games where you create these sort of barriers as the attacking barbarians are coming in. And hopefully those barriers, you know, they start, they start like depleting, but you know, over time you get enough energy and you can replenish those barriers. You know, it's really kind of that game, nothing more, but there's no perfect layering, you know, and many times I I, I know you've received them. We get emails from somebody saying, Hey, I've got the perfect, ladder laddering strategy i do this 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 and then you know i you know do two two twirls in the air and i replenish it after doing two twirls because when i do two twirls it works great you get a lot of things like that and you see this a lot in popular consumer blog posts where some you know some guy gets somebody's retired and they have nothing to do so they start up a financial blog site or something like that and they talk about how this marvelous laddering strategy is working for them hence you should do it too and this is going back to your point about guidance there really is no there there it's just this illusion of of safety through layering but at the end of the day all that's happening is you're getting more aggressive with your portfolio you just choose not to see it that way hey there folks this is brie from retirement researcher popping in with an exciting announcement leading up to episode 100 of the retire with style podcast We could not be more grateful and appreciative to be sharing this milestone with each and every one of you that tune in with us week after week. So with that being said, in honor of our 100th episode, Retirement Researcher is sponsoring a giveaway. Please visit retirementresearcher.com slash 100 to enter for your chance to win one of three prizes. We will be closing this giveaway next week on Tuesday, October 17th. So be sure to get your entries in now. For more information about everything you need to know about our 100th episode celebration, including the giveaway and the live Q&A session, you can visit retirementresearcher.com slash 100 or click the link below in the show notes. Once again, that's retirementresearcher.com slash 100. Good luck and thanks again for listening. Right, right. And that's, yeah, definitely we want to unpack that a little further about asset allocation and the fact that with bucketing, you pretty much allow your asset allocation to be dynamic. Yeah. Uh, you're not trying to hold a fixed portfolio allocation. If if you keep your same short-term bucket and then your stocks are growing, you're going to have a higher stock allocation. If you stop replenishing your short-term buckets and let your, bl- your bonds deplete, uh, depending on which is depleting faster, the stocks or the bonds, you, you could have a more aggressive stock allocation. And it's, it's a dynamic and variable asset allocation. And really, when we start talking about like, like the whole question of is bucketing a better way to invest? 
Well, the answer is generally no. It, it's more of a behavioral thing. But if it is a better way to invest, it generally relies on letting you increase your stock allocation over time. It's like a rising equity glide path. And in general, higher stock allocations will do better in simulations. So if you have a, a mechanism that will let your stock allocation creep up, that might show outperformance well, relative to a fixed asset well, allocation. I, I, but that's a big I would part say of it. it's not like a equity gl- glide path. I think remember if everything's on a dimension, right? There's there's hardcore. If you're all the way on safety first and you know you're towards the middle between optionality and commitment orientation, that could be a more traditional bond ladder. But as you move towards probability base, but still on the safety first side, I to me that's what a rising equity glide path is. It's just instead of individual bonds are using a bond fund. And so, you know, you're assuming that that'll ballast, you know, you can take funds from there for a while because of the conservative nature of it, but you're forcing a higher allocation over time. And yeah, if someone ever points out, but this, this bond ladder did so much better than the traditional 60, 40 portfolio. And the bond ladder started at, I don't know, 40, 60 or or 50, 50. The reality is, is that as you've been depleting, on average, if you take the the aggregate allocation over a 10-year period of those two funds, sure, the total return was consistently at 60-40, but probably the laddering strategy ended up having a higher average equity allocation over 10 years than than the other one. Hence, that's why it did better because, you know, you were invested in, in, in riskier assets for a disproportionate amount of those assets relative to the 60-40. Yeah, especially if you're not replenishing the the short-term buckets. If you're spending that money and not refilling it from the long-term buckets, you can be more assured that you're going to have a rising equity glide path. It, it doesn't always have to work out that way. And some some ways makes time segmentation inferior to total returns. And that's if you're automatically replenishing the short-term bucket every year, that can actually deplete your growth buckets before your short-term buckets. And so you'd have a lower stock allocation over time. So it's not automatically going to lead to a rising equity glide path, though in any sort of argument that time segmentation is a better way to invest, you can be assured it's that argument's going to rest on having a, a rising equity glide path or increasing the stock allocation over time. And to, to like that's the dedication folks, that's okay. Uh, that's, they disagree with risk tolerance questionnaires. They disagree with having a, a static total returns asset allocation. It's it's back to that point about bonds are meant to fund expenses. Stocks are meant to provide growth. So you're, you don't choose your asset allocation up like before the fact is your asset allocation falls out of, well, if I want an eight-year bond ladder, how much bonds will it take to do that? And then the rest can go into stocks there's my asset allocation. I don't really care in advance what that's going to be. It's it's chosen more based on what I wanted to fund with my short-term buckets than it is based on any sort of desire to have a particular stock bond. And, and they're not they're not too stingy about the equity simply because if you've earmarked 8 years of assets, you know, to fund your retirement income needs, well, mazel tov, right? More power to you that you can do that. But after you know they're not too worried because they're you know they would be like yeah put the rest in in the markets because you already have eight years uh, of assets you know dedicated accounted for if you will to cut yourself a check so 
the little bit of leap of faith is surely by then, after eight years, if there was a market downturn, it would have recovered. There is this, that's why it's, it's a little bit of a, of a behavior thing, because you're just assuming that, okay, the markets will recover. And then when it's time to replenish, I think eight years is a good number to give them to be able to dip back into the equity markets and pour the surplus into the buckets again. Yeah, and that's where there's definitely a strong emphasis on this idea of stocks for the long run, because I think for most advocates of bucketing, there's a pretty strong faith that the stock market will recover (laughs) by the time you're forced to sell from it. Uh, and, And you can really even see that reflected in asset dedication. They've actually, one of the terms they developed is the equity yield curve, where they just look at based on different investing horizons, what asset allocations give you the best performing worst case scenario? You want to like maximize the minimum or the <laughs> the best outcome in the worst case scenario based on time horizon. And if it's a short horizon, just a couple of years, usually bonds are going to give you the best uh, performance in the worst case scenario because stocks are quite exposed to significant losses in the short term. But once you start getting past 10 or 15 or even 20 or beyond years, the uh, the least risky based on this sort of analysis, like the, the best performing uh, allocation, the worst case scenario can get pretty aggressive. And they talk about like at the, the longer end of their equity yield curve in that 25, 30 year range, we may be talking about like emerging market funds, small cap value, asset classes that are generally thought to have high expected returns, but high volatility over extremely long time horizons may give you a better worst case performance than anything else. And so there really is this sense of we want to have as much in stocks as possible. The only constraint on that is that need to build those short-term buckets. And because we're relatively confident in the stock market, we'd like to have those short-term buckets not be filled with too much. But that's, again, back to if you're a more conservative investor, Instead of having a three year, three years of expenses covered in your bucket, you might have eight years or 10 years. And that's how you get the higher bond allocation. But ultimately, bonds are a burden. You don't want them. (laughs) You really want to have stocks because over longer holding periods in this mindset, uh, you're going to feel comfortable that that you'll get a better investment performance from those stocks. And you have a significantly long enough holding period to be able to take advantage and capitalize on that. And you're not really worried about the risk that stocks underperform over that longer time horizon. Got you. And if you're, I'm just trying to think about the, the, the general assumptions in the bond ladder in terms of thinking of their questions in somebody's head. Uh, something that you didn't address, because we're saying from bond, f- from bonds, from individual bonds, so effectively, the collective dividends that those the, the yield payments that those bonds make, you're using it. But also, we're fully expecting to those bond for those bonds to go to maturity, to mature at par, in which you will get you will you also use that money to deploy it to cover your retirement expenses. You want to talk about that a little bit in you know in your mm-hmm. way? Yeah, yeah. You're spending coupon payments, and then you're spending the face value at maturity. And so it, it can get complicated with replenishing. <laughs> so you, you don't necessarily need the full spending amount for that final bucket or that final year of spending if you're pretty sure you're going to replenish before then. But without the replenishing, you just work backwards. 
if I want to build an eight-year bond ladder, I first buy enough of the eight-year maturity that its face value and coupon payment in that final year is going to cover my expenses for that year. Then I go to year seven and I can deduct the eight-year bonds coupon payment from what I need in year seven and then just buy enough seven-year bond to fill that gap. And then in year six, I've got a, a two coupon payments already coming in. So I don't need as much bond in year six, but I, I buy enough bond to fill the remaining we're, gap. We're, and you work your way back. To I'm also payment. assuming here, because if you think about the trade-offs that you're making with risk and return, I'm assuming the you're not you're not striving for yield. You're not hunting for the highest yield possible. You're just when we're talking individual bond funds. Keep in mind, I don't think in my head and Wade, correct me if I'm wrong. I just want you to say it though. We're not saying buy Carnival Cruise Line, you know, ten year bonds at whatever nine percent, you know, versus the U.S. Treasury at whatever six percent. You're not. We're 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 assuming. That these are, you know, as close to AAA risk-free that you can get, like government style. Not, mm-hmm. we're not thinking high yield corporates in the slightest. But I, I, I don't want to speak for you, right? <laughs> Especially if you're going to hold one individual bond, you don't really want to have much in the way of credit risk because <laughs> you're depending on that to cover a year's spending. So, indeed, you are you're not looking to just maximize yield purely by taking risk to do that. You are looking for what you feel are pretty safe bonds in that regard. It's going to either be government, U.S. government, like treasuries, or maybe allocating to a few different very high-quality corporate bonds. But, but right, it's not just about simply maximizing yield. Though in the context of once you get into looking at bonds with enough safety, then, of course, you do want to pick from the highest-yielding options there. Yeah but you don't want to stretch and, and take And you are taking them to maturity. It's just the companies can always go under or something like that. So it's not that you'd be selling an eight-year mm-hmm. bond in year four, and then you have to eat whatever the, the difference in value is relative to the economic standing of that company at the time. We're assuming you're taking them to par anyways, maturity anyways. But, you know, you don't, that's why you, that's what you have risk for equity, you know, at, at that point. And I wouldn't want to like uh, cast the die on the, on the bond side of things. Uh, wait now, how, how did we, how do we reconcile this? Because I think it's apparent from folks listening to us, this is not our own personal style. We don't fall in this time segmentation quadrant because, you know, we believe in, in what we just said in terms of all of these sort of caveats that we gave that we're like, eh, for us personally, you know, I, I think there's other fish to fry, you know, if you ask me, but if someone comes up and says, I'm in the time segmentation quadrant, Again, uh, at the risk of speaking for you, we're not like, you shouldn't do that. This is not right. I, 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 to me, if, if, it, if it fits you, if it resonates with you, if it's something you can stay disciplined with, et cetera, it's fine. Wait? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Like people have different preferences. They have different ways of viewing the world. Uh, I personally am more of a risk grab style, which is I am comfortable investing in the markets and depending on the markets for growth, but I'd feel more comfortable having some sort of guardrail behind that. However, I understand that other people are behaviorally more comfortable with time segmentation because it's, it pretty much is the case that yes, the, <laughs> the stock market will probably do fine over a long enough holding period. 
I personally wouldn't want to depend on that and wouldn't feel comfortable depending on that for my own retirement. But if you're comfortable with that idea, then then, then by all means, do what makes you comfortable. And, and so if framing asset allocation in that manner and if having those short-term buckets gives you the confidence to invest and to feel comfortable and to feel positive that the markets will do fine by the time you ever have to sell any of those assets, then that's fine. And it's okay to build a strategy around that. It is a viable strategy for sure. I mean, it's at the margins, it's just about, is there truly a better way to invest? Well, we don't know until we see what happens in the future. But, but yeah, no, it, it's a viable strategy. It's a viable Yeah, approach. and the last thing I, I think is, oh, this is anecdote, and anecdote is not evidence, I get it, but this is a talk show effectively. So it's good, good old storytelling, right? Uh, in my view, Wade, what I've experienced speaking with professionals or individuals it seems to me a total return person, a risk rep person, and an income protection person, they can reconcile that there are different strategies that that can be effective, you know, and they're they're more into that, okay, it's a preference. It seems to me in our conversations, the time segmentation cap is the most, on a relative basis, the most adamant about this is the best strategy, right? I, those are my interactions. Do you find that or not? Yeah, I think I know where you're coming from with that. Certainly every style has its adherents who think it's the best and everyone should use it. But no, I know what you mean. You'll see in the time segmentation crowd uh, efforts to apply like everyone. I mean, well, there's this whole idea that time segmentation is somehow a superior way to invest. It, it's not, but it, <laughs> I, I know where you're coming from because there are definitely people who express that sort of opinion. Yeah, they're talking to us and we just nod because we don't want to go into like a 20 minute, <laughs> not so fast, you know, kind of discussion. More common courtesy, we nod and just, or, you know, kind of move on. But afterwards, we're like, you know, we realize this. And, and also, uh, so at the beginning, we talked about how if you ask 100 people what time segmentation means, you'll get 100 different answers. Some of those answers can involve really just making time segmentation into a, a comprehensive approach that can accommodate any other style as well. So maybe your buckets include lifetime income annuities. Maybe your buckets de-emphasize individual bonds and just focus on <laughs> it's a perpetual bucket. It's a, it's, so you, it's a flooring bucket all of a sudden. <laughs> the perpetual bucket yeah, machine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So you can. You can see uh, explanations of time segmentation that do somehow broaden it to accommodate any other style as well. And that's, we're more narrowly defining time segmentation in terms of a pure time segmentation approach for the purposes of these th this series of episodes. Now, we, we do still have more content, but I think at this point we could save it for a, a part two episode. We want to actually talk about the key part of time segmentation, how do you draw from the long-term buckets to replenish the short-term buckets? So we should cover a few different methods to do that and then really dig in deeper into that question of is bucketing a superior way to invest or is it more of a behavioral way to justify an asset allocation? And I think we can save that all for, for another episode, but I know we're going to have this broken up because we're coming up on episode 100. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and again, we so. just wanted to lay the groundwork on the, the next arc will be time segmentation because it's the quadrant that we haven't covered yet. We did total return. We did a whole arc on total return. 
we did a whole arc on annuities of which embedded within that was income protection and risk wrap. And so we hadn't done time segmentation yet. So this is the, the preamble, if you will, to, to get on that on-ramp to talk about it. But yeah, we have a special century edition episode uh, next, next time around. So before we got too into it, we just wanted to lay the groundwork, right? Because mm-hmm. whoever would have thought we'd make it 100 episodes, but here we are <laughs> next, next week on Retirement All right, Journal. All right, everyone. Well, thank you for listening in on this, this quick hit episode. And uh, we'll catch you next week for episode 100. And then we'll roll up our sleeves and go into the ins and outs, all things uh, time segmentation. Right, Wade? That's right. Yeah, thanks, everyone, and catch you next time on Retire. Yeah, well, well, wait, sorry. I Wade, do you think for the 100th episode you can get 100, set, 100 push-ups in? You got seven days, man. <laughs> that, that's a good huh? goal, yeah. I'll, I'll see if I can just get do, a, that, Just do 10 sets of 10. I need to do. All Honestly, right. do 10 sets yeah. of 10. <laughs> we got 10 do sets it. of 10. All right. All right. That sounds All right. fair. Okay, everyone. Peer pressure. Okay. You see, peer pressure <laughs> will get way to do 100. I know, I know you got it in you. I know you got it in you. All right. All right, everyone. <laughs> Thanks for listening in today. All right. Bye, everyone. Wade and Alex are both principals in McLean Asset Management and Retirement Researcher. Both are SEC-registered investment advisors located in Tysons, Virginia. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational and educational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific securities. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor. All investing comes with a risk, including risk of loss. Past performance does not guarantee future results.